Hey everyone, how's it going? Welcome back to the Infatuation Podcast. Today we're I'm I'm really excited to geek out a little bit today because uh, Chris, you don't know this, but I, I well you kind of know this, but I, I teach high school biology, so I've been talking about the same stuff for for 28 years. <laughs> you know, we talk about uh, cellular respiration. You know, the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff. So it's really exciting for me to talk about uh, things that are a little more cutting edge and a little more exciting. So uh, everyone out there, I hope you're into this too, but I'm going to talk a little bit of science today. We're going to talk a little bit about medicine, data science, artificial intelligence. We are with uh, University of California at San Francisco medical doctor and postdoctoral researcher, Chris Williams. Hey, Chris, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. It's, yeah, it's great to, to have me on and thanks for inviting me on here. Oh, of course. Yeah. Uh, side note, we are uh, talking because I met Chris at a really cool event. When was that? About a month and a half ago. It's called the Postdoc Slam where postdoc researchers at UCSF uh, have to boil their their years of research down to three minutes and you get one slide and Chris made it to the top 10 and I got to be one of the judges. I was invited to be one of the judges because I know some folks over there and they wanted a high school teacher there. So I got to judge and Chris made it to the podium. He made, got third place in the postdoc slam. So congrats on that. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I, th- I think you know, one of the things that as researchers we're not perhaps as good as we should be at is just talking about our research in a you know, understandable way. And I think it was great to be able to do that and uh, you know, use that opportunity to to reach a slightly wider audience than who I might be presenting to at a conference. So yeah, thanks yeah. for judging that. No, that was great. Yeah, it was it was good because I could see the struggle of trying to get these really complicated ideas down to down to three minutes in in digestible terms. But it was fun. It was uh, we'll talk about the paper later a little bit. But it's about emergency rooms and what is what's the actual title? Racial disparity in racial times? disparities in the uh, uh, acuity scores. So how clinically unwell we we say patients are. Ah, okay. Yeah. yeah. So we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But uh, before we get to that, we like to greet our guests in the Asian way. So, Chris, have you eaten yet? I have, yes. Thank you. Have you? Uh, uh, yes, I have. Yeah, good. Beautiful. So I'm glad we're both well-fed. We're ready to go here. Yeah. Can we dig into your roots a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm guessing you're not from San Francisco originally. Is <laughs> <laughs> that a way? Um, I don't know. I don't know. Your skin color, I guess. <laughs> uh, so you're from England. Yes. Uh, yeah. So uh, I was actually born in Singapore. Um, oh, I, yeah, so I'm, uh, I'm half Chinese. My mum's from Malaysia, Malaysian Chinese, and my dad's from the UK. Um, I spent four years in Singapore and then we moved to the UK where I kind of grew up. And so I, yeah, I'm kind of, I guess I consider myself very wet because, you know, I spent most of my life in the UK, but uh, I have half my family in Malaysia mainly. So do you get back there at all? Uh, not as much as I would like these days. We used to go back every couple of years, hmm. uh, certainly since med school. And it just so happens that, you know, exams always in the summer and yeah, yeah. life gets in the way. But uh, yeah, when yeah. I can. Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, what part of London did you, oh, sorry, what part of England did you grow up in? Uh, so uh, a, a place called St. Albans or, or close to a place called St. Albans. I was in a village actually, but I say St. Albans, which is, uh, about 20 miles north of London. Um, so between London and Cambridge, give or take. Yeah, I did a little poking around on LinkedIn. And so St. Albans is one of the oldest schools in the world. It's like over a thousand years old. 
Yeah, I had forgotten about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, if you're game, are you willing to play a little St. Albans trivia? <laughs> oh, very game. I, I'm probably going to do very poorly, but uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so we're we're talking Hertfordshire. Yeah. Okay, so we are in. We're talking about St. Albans. It is over a thousand years old. Founded by uh, Abbot Wulshin in what year? I nine something nine nine sixty three. Close nine forty eight. So you, you, you get you yeah. gypped him a little bit, yeah. So over a thousand, almost almost eleven 1, hundred years old. Yeah. All right. Now I also saw that you did A levels in Latin, so this should be easy for oh, you. Oh no, this was a long time ago. Can I just point out? <laughs> All right. The school's motto is okay. "Non nobilis nati." What does that mean in English? That that what I do. That born not for ourselves. Yeah, that's great. Born not for ourselves. So they kind of have an emphasis on service and helping others. Is that kind of? Yeah, I, I think, yeah. Uh, in general. Yeah, <laughs> generally. <laughs> okay, but I, so in over a thousand years, you can have quite a few famous alumni. One of the ones that I think there's a house named after him is Stephen Hawking. We all know him. Yep. All right, so I'm going to give you four people. Which one of these four did not go to St. Albans? <laughs> all right, okay. Are right, you ready? Composer Tim Rice, he's famous for writing the lyrics to Aladdin and Beauty of the Beast and Elvita. Uh, uh, sorry, Evita. Evita, Elizabeth, Lizzie Bird, Britain's record holder in the 3,000-meter steeplechase, evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins, author of Selfish Gene, also coined the term meme, or Pope Adrian IV. He was the Pope from 1154 until his death in 1159. Which one of those four distinguished English people did not go to St. Albans? So Lizzie Bird, I know because uh, she's a couple of years ahead yeah. of me and a, a good friend of mine is a runner as well. And so I know she did go to St. Albans. Okay. Uh, Richard, oh God. <laughs> <laughs> I reckon, is it uh, Tim Rice you said? Who's the first Tim one? Rice is the lyricist, Tim Rice. yeah. I reckon he probably did. Okay. I, and then it's a question of whether Dawkins or the Pope. Pope Adrian the Fourth. And how recently was Pope Adrian? I, I'm not I'm not very 1154. Oh, okay. So I'm going to go for Dawkins didn't, because I reckon I would have known about it if uh, he couldn't have recent it is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, is, that, is that true? You got it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. So Pope Adrian, Pope Adrian went to St. Albans. All right. Yeah. The list is long. I could have gone, I could have gone really deep on this list, but yeah. all right. So you did pretty well. Three for three. Not, well, like two for three. Not bad. Not bad. All right. So that's kind of cool. And then after St. Albans, it's off to Cambridge. Yeah. Uh, yes, that's correct. What was the plan? The plan was medicine the whole time. Do you come from a line of doctors, like three generations in? Or? <laughs> uh, no, is the answer. I, I guess at school, I, I've never been the kind of the person who always wanted to be a doctor since the age of three. Um, I guess I've always been curious about a variety of things, and I liked my sciences in school, and that was one of the main drivers. Um, because uh, I remember thinking, uh, like I did work experience in law, for instance, as well as medicine, and and I think the, the first work experience I did was in a hospital. Like it was a week over the summer, and I remember thinking that uh, this is all right. You know, I don't really understand much of what's going on, and you know, no seventeen, sixteen year old really wants to be in a hospital or anywhere working in the summer when it's outside. So I left thinking it's all right, but you know, we'll see what else is there. Did a week of law and then realized that, okay, <laughs> law is not for me uh, because it's uh, lots of reading, shall we yeah. say, and uh, yeah, and more reading. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I can say that my brothers are now a lawyer. So, <laughs> um, 
Um, but yeah, so my, I don't know, my family, I don't, I'm the first doctor. I mean, I think my dad's the first of his generation to go to university and my mum's from Malaysia. And it's, you know, so they, they didn't come from very, uh, you know, well-educated backgrounds, uh, per se, from a formally educated, I guess. Mm. Um, and yeah, so not very much, not from a line, long line of doctors, <laughs> but yeah. What's your dad doing in Malaysia or Singapore? So they met in London. They're both accountants. Oh, okay. um, and they met in London, then went out to Singapore, probably to be closer to uh, my mum's family. And I, or, or that plus, I think there's a job opportunity there. And so it was kind of work slash family related, I guess. Do you feel close to your Asian side at all? I mean, growing up in England in a in a town, not really a metropolis per se, but did you feel pretty close to your Asian side at all? Or did you kind of downplay it a little bit growing up? Uh I guess yes and no in that, uh, you know, I feel, as I said earlier, I feel very westernized almost because you, you know, I feel like I've missed out on a, a some perhaps Asian cultural uh, heritage because I've not, in comparison, say my cousins in Malaysia who are very, you know, very much the other side of the coin. And, you know, looking back on things, you know, reflecting back on, say, my childhood, it's, yeah, it, things like you're trying to fit in more, perhaps it, it's it's almost easier to embrace your Western side more than to embrace your Chinese side. Being in a mm-hmm. in predominantly white uh, primary school, say, sure. yeah. or an entirely white primary school, and uh, and you do kind of stick out because you, you you're different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and so it's only I guess in in more recent years I look back and think that actually, yeah, it, this is a side that I've don't know as much about as you know, I know it a little bit about kind of thing or you know, but uh, there's always more to learn i guess and True, um yeah. you know i'd love to yeah just embrace that side of things more sure uh, going forwards yeah so you get your medical degree well you're at you're at cambridge for what eight or nine years about or so i uh i was living in cambridge for eight years uh six years of that was med school uh slash so med school in the UK is a little different from here in that um, it's either a five-year undergrad degree or a six-year undergrad plus you get a bachelor's in something okay, degree. Okay. So Cambridge is very traditional in that you you do two years of kind of basic sciences, uh-huh. uh, medical basic sciences. And then in the third year, you you do the same course as all the other scientists who are getting the bachelor's. And so you get your bachelor's after three years. Um, and then you do three years of clinical school where you're in the you're doing rotation clinical rotations in the hospital mm-hmm. and so it's a six-year course spent in Cambridge um, and then after that I did two years of, of residency essentially but then California comes a call in around 2022 is that about right you moved to San Francisco yep uh, the uh, yeah basically over a year just over a year ago yeah. um so right something yeah, yeah about like that. <laughs> time flies <laughs> time is flying. yeah no kidding and so what drew you to ucsf um i guess a variety of things i think by that point so i wanted to uh so clinical training in the uk is very long uh it's probably about eight to ten years um and i knew that i wanted to split you know not to just you know, follow the conveyor belts and uh, I was very interested, interested in research and have been for you know, some years, both in medical school and, and after graduating. And I wanted to uh, do more of what I was really interested in, health data science, uh, AI and medicine, that kind of research. Mm-hmm. And so I think about, well, two things. Uh, firstly, um, I remember my, my boss at Atul Butte, who's a fantastic guy. I remember during COVID times watching a webinar of his uh, and... <laughs> I don't know if for anyone who's seen him speak, he's he's something of a like 
He's both the most optimistic person I know, probably, <laughs> and one of the most inspirational uh. speakers. He can really sell something. And uh, I remember talk, him talk, hearing him talking about how, I think the phrase was, data is the new soil rather than the new oil. Huh. And essentially saying that you know, there is so much data uh, to go around and so many people who can you do it that we're no longer competing against each other in, in research, say. Uh, and instead, it's a question of how do we all get together and collaborate and work towards this kind of better medical uh, research future that we, we all want. And so that was just kind of a wow moment for me yeah. of, you know, I, I, I really want to kind of work under him. Yeah. Uh, and then similarly from a data perspective, so we're very privileged at UCSF to have access to lots and lots of data, mm. essentially. So all the identified health records yeah. from the university, the entire University of California system. Uh, so UCSF, UCLA and, and so forth. And so uh, this has all been kind of put into place like safely and ethically and so forth to allow us to uh, to do this kind of research. And just on a scale perspective, it, it means you can do a multi-institutional study. Mm-hmm. You know, at, It's all at the tip of your fingertips, basically, wow. because it, you just have to know how to code in order to access this data. Yeah. And that was such a big drive for me. So yeah, it's the combination of those two things, I yeah. guess. And the weather in SF, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> it doesn't hurt. Yeah, it doesn't hurt. So we're talking about uh, Atul Butte, director of the Bakar Computational Health Sciences Institute at UCSF. So pretty cool stuff. I'll, I'll link some of the websites in the show notes so people can follow that. But yeah, I've never heard him speak. So I guess I got I to gotta watch some of his uh, webinars and stuff. But uh, so you get to San Francisco and you become a postdoc researcher for those out there who don't know. Uh, so once you have a doctorate, you can do what's called postdoc research where you're working in a you're kind of in between the Ph.D. students and the primary investigators. You you have a, one degree or two degrees under your belt, but you're you're doing you're expanding on your research. So you're doing a lot of computer stuff. Did you did you ever take a lot of did you take a lot of coding in, in undergrad or or how'd you learn how to code? Yeah, no is the answer. I, uh, I guess I, I never thought I'd be the AI guy. Is what I always say, and yet somehow right. four years down the line, here I am doing being the AI guy. Uh-huh. I guess I've always been driven by a desire to do impactful research, and that often means doing things at a scale that is, uh, you know, large, a public health essentially population health scale. And I think, uh, you know, back a couple of years ago, I thought, well, I want to do this type of research, and what what's the easiest way to to do things at scale it's learning how to code yeah because yeah. if you can do things in an automatic fashion then you can scale very very easily hmm. and so i actually started off my research course one the, one of the main things that started off the, me down this uh, ai path was when i was looking at um the dizziness clinic in one of the hospitals in cambridge Avonbrooks, and we're looking at some of the symptoms that patients with, diz- with different types of dizziness problems were experiencing and I basically thought, well, why don't I just do a basic word count of what's uh, condition A versus condition B, what the symptoms are. Uh-huh. And we, we submitted this for, for publication. And one of the reviews that came back was that this is actually called natural language processing. Hmm. It's not quite how you do it. And you, you can do it a slightly better way. And so we looked into that. And that was kind of my my first uh-huh. kind of entry into what natural language processing is huh. and now with chat gpt and everything four years later and suddenly everybody knows what huh. what this kind of field is and yeah. it's quite nice because yeah people understand what you i'm doing explain it every so. single time <laughs> yeah. exactly yeah okay so that's cool so basically what you're using is 
machine learning or AI where you're going over medical records in a way, or, or like you said, descriptions of diseases or symptoms, and you're kind of trying to find patterns? Uh, yeah, essentially, I use uh, statistical or AI tools to answer impactful questions in medicine or public health. Mm -hmm. So we think about, okay, say racial disparities within healthcare, how do we identify this at scale? And if we have, say, a few hundred thousand patients who are going to the emergency department, then we can use certain regression models as statistical models to look at the odds of, say, being a ethnic minority patient versus a white patient and whether they do or don't receive certain types of care. Mm. That's, that's one side of things. And then I'm also looking from a more AI side of things at how can we apply these AI models to improve healthcare. So either to identify things in research, such as what symptoms do patients with dizziness experience, or to actually use these models in the kind of uh, the workflow, uh, such as how can we use ChatGPT within medicine to improve patient care or improve the um, improve doctors kind of workflows so such that they have less administrative uh, tasks to do. Mm -hmm. I saw one study, we're going to talk about it a little bit. This one study where you were looking at how, well, you can describe it better. <laughs> so you're looking at emergency room uh, records and you were trying to see, could we use ChatGPT to figure out uh, diagnoses, whether it's uh, figure out if, well, you explained it. <laughs> Try to explain it better than I can. Sure. So I guess the pretext to this is since ChatGPT came out, a number of the UCSF team have done an amazing job setting up a secure kind of interface in which we can send this de-identified patient data to OpenAI via something called an API, which is basically just a, a computer. And this has allowed us to kind of, in a HIPAA-compliant way, use their ChatGPT interface. Or we call it something slightly different, but that, that's the, the layperson's term sure. uh, for it. And so this spawned a whole bunch of research projects thinking about, well, how can we apply these to different parts of healthcare. And so one of the, the areas that I'm quite interesting is interested in is the emergency department mm -hmm. because it's you know the first place in which you you go as a patient typically if you have a serious medical problem and there's it's kind of the the, end, the, the, the front door to the hospital. Yeah. And so we took the notes of uh, emergency department physicians the doctors from the emergency department uh, who have seen these patients and we sought to find out whether ChatGPT or its, its successor GPT-4 now can assess how unwell is this patient. And so the I guess the the benefit of this is that if we can make if we can improve the timeliness of this type of assessment, i.e. identification identifying which patient is unwell versus another patient, then we can get them care sooner and therefore their outcomes are better. Hmm. So in practice, I, I guess this is just early research, but in practice, what could that look like? That could look like if someone shows up at the ER and the registering nurses types in a couple symptoms, AI might be able to figure out, oh, this person needs to be seen before this person. So one of the things that we are uh, looking at is how do we... Currently, emergency departments are getting overcrowded because yeah. of uh, you know, limited resources, right, aging population, and so forth. And oftentimes, perhaps less so in the US, but certainly in the UK, there's perhaps a queue even before seeing the triage nurse. Yeah. And so, before that, there's a you know, this risk of we've got to have a bunch of patients who are queuing and we don't know anything about them. 
And so, you know, hypothetically, and again, this is very early research, but if we could have some form of interface whereby patients describe their symptoms and are asked questions perhaps by a chat TPT type uh-huh. bot, and they that can be used uh, to flag, say, okay, there is a patient who is number 18 in the queue who hasn't even seen the triage nurse yet, yet who needs to see the triage uh-huh. nurse now because they've got a, a big heart attack type yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. Whereas the you know, number one to seventeen who've all got stubbed toes right. <laughs> don't need to see them as as, as quickly. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. That's interesting. And that does that kind of lead to your the one that you presented about the racial disparity a little bit as well? Did that kind of spring out of this search? Uh, not the, the interest is just broadly how do I do things in the emergency okay, department? Okay. Which you know how, what questions are important questions to ask? And so one of my other areas which does tie into AI is is that of kind of bias in, in both clinical care and in kind of algorithmic bias, so AI bias. Mm-hmm. And so the work that I presented was essentially looking at clinical bias. So, you know, we live in a, a biased society and mm-hmm. um, there is unconscious bias in, in all of us, I think. Sure. And and ultimately, my interest from a healthcare perspective is how do we identify and address that bias? Because, you know, the chances are most people don't want to, it, nobody wants to, to be biased, right. they want to treat everybody fairly, right. especially healthcare providers. But how do we address our own unconscious biases, and and what what gives us? How do we identify in amongst ourselves when we have that bias? And so, one of the things I wanted to do using the, the large data sets we had was to to do that at, a, at an institutional level. Mm-hmm. So, using both UCSF data and data from another hospital that we have access to, and and work out okay, well, which patients are and for what types of conditions, i.e. I don't know bone problems, orthopedic problems, say, or for pregnant ladies, or you know, what types of conditions do the greatest disparities exist, hmm. so that that can then inform future research to perhaps address, say, I don't know, maybe the uh, the fact that black pregnant women are more likely to have a higher mortality rate than white pregnant women. Mm-hmm. Maybe part of that, uh, the origin of that, is because of the actual initial assignment of how unwell they are uh-huh. in um you know when they first come into the emergency department because if say black patients are more likely to be assigned as not as unwell than white patients uh, assuming they come in with the same presentation then that is a problem that could lead to poor outcomes for that group of patients down the line mm-hmm. yeah and so it, it's really just kind of combining again it's i very much look at things from a public health perspective of what areas of public health and need to be addressed and certainly that in the last five ten or so years there's been a, a huge shift which has been amazing looking at disparities both um kind of everything we term the social determinants of health so socioeconomic status you know whether you have insurance if you can afford up to treatments similarly um you know racial and ethnic disparities and other types of you know where you live and, and other things education level uh, access to uh, clean like, housing and so forth uh, and and it, we're slowly beginning to unpick all of this. Well, that led to this other study. I saw this older study. And then you said you just had a very small part in it. But it's a global study. 82 countries, over 16,000, about 16,000 patients. And so I, I looked at the list of authors, hundreds of hundreds yeah. of contributors to this paper. But it was looking at that, right? Looking at on a country level or or income level of different countries, how does... Uh, how does the healing rate or mortality rate after cancer surgery, how is it impacted by the just the status of, of care? And what did that paper find? 
So one of the, uh, so I, I say I didn't do very much for that bit because I really didn't. Essentially, this is part of one of the uh, initiatives to increase access to research and increase the, mm. the reach of research. And so this is called a global search collaborative. And by that, it means that uh, there are a bunch of kind of teams within each individual hospital uh, across different hospitals in the UK and also the US and also a bunch of developing countries and, and however many countries yeah, you mentioned. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I, I was just a one of the data collect. I think I was leading the, the data collection for Adamus Hospital in Cambridge. Uh-huh. And so I wasn't kind of the brains of the study or anything at, at all for that. But the benefit of that kind of this kind of collaborative study and one of the reasons why it's so it can be so impactful is because you you have this scale again and you can find out things mm. across 63 countries yeah. or, or whatever it was. 82. <laughs> 82, yeah. even more. Yeah. That's yeah, me as an individual researcher no could, could not. Yeah. And so, yeah, some of the findings was essentially looking at how, well, first of all, looking at how does the uh, the severity of illness of, of the condition differ across countries? And so they were finding that, say, and this is perhaps unsurprising, that in more in kind of developing countries, you're more likely to present later at a later stage mm-hmm. compared to in developed country. Mm-hmm. And and I guess that is very much well. There's probably a variety of reasons for that, but access to care and you know kind of the more primary care type model is perhaps some of them. But in addition, they were trying to work out well how much of the worse mortality associated with being in a a more developing country. Uh, was because of the later presentation or are there additional factors such as the delivery of care uh, almost the systems care uh, so the, the, the systems problems i.e how well does the health system run what perioperative care uh, around in and around the surgery um can uh, what differences are there between say the uk versus more or in the us versus developing countries and and yeah, so they essentially found that it was a combination of both the the later presentation, but importantly, there were factors which were which could be identified and addressed that were specific to the actual healthcare system. So you were in Cambridge during the pandemic. Yes, was that. Uh, what was it like doing research? I saw a couple papers come out about COVID and about different things about COVID. What was it like doing doing epidemiological stuff during a global pandemic? Was it kind of a, a data science dream or, or was it kind of a nightmare? <laughs> what was it like doing research during that time? Yeah, so... So I, I, my year was the year that kind of we we were the class of COVID essentially, and so we graduated early. Uh-huh. We technically skipped the uh, what do you call it uh, final clinical exams. We've done all of our recent exams, but we were due to have the clinical exams in May, and <laughs> in fact we were very uh, happy to sure? not have to do these clinical <laughs> exams. But um, but then a lot of us volunteered to start work early because of COVID mm-hmm. and so forth, and so a lot of the research. I think the main project that I uh, started there was actually not it was more public health related than data science related it was a systematic review looking at interventions to reduce uh, social isolation and loneliness during covid that, yeah. times and i think the rationale behind that was i felt that a lot of people were quite rightly looking at the epidemiology the infectious disease side how do you prevent how do you get vaccines and so yeah, forth yeah. but as is perhaps unsurprising some of the other aspects of population health i.e mental health was being it was not you know getting the the the, the focus that I thought it you know, would ultimately require, especially if we're going to lock down the majority of the population. Yeah. And so 
we yeah we, we put together a, a group uh, with public health psychiatry and other faculty and ran a kind of a rapid systematic review within a couple of months and it was <laughs> it was a lot of work uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, you know kind of both practicing like on a covid ward uh during my normal working hours mm-hmm. and then trying to organize and run all of this into my free time essentially but yeah. It, it it got a lot of traction and uh i think it's been cited like 180 odd times and yeah. viewed like 30,000 times so it's probably my most impactful piece of work so far uh-huh. and i guess it, it just shows the it, i was basically a medical student when i started this <laughs> and it, you know it shows how with good guidance with some you know professors you collaborate with uh, and a good kind of core team of people what what can be done you know together collaboratively i guess um with everybody working you know in unison mm-hmm and and what kind of impact you can make yeah. so yeah it was it, it was yeah an interesting time sure. um yeah. <laughs> but yeah it, it got it was well received and got a lot of, of interest so i'm glad we did it it's almost like you i almost forget how scary the pre-vaccine covid era was it was like we knew we knew so little you know and it was kind of like one of those times, I mean, there's some memes about it, too, where, like, you know, people ignore scientists most of the time until mm-hmm. it's like they were they were saying uh, scientists are kind of like that one smart kid on the group project where you kind of lean on them to do most of the work when you need it, you know, and it's kind of like that's how we felt about scientists at the time. We kind of ignore them most of the time. But when we really needed them, we're like, OK, we need a vaccine in six months. And that's that's a crazy mm-hmm. feat to pull off. But, you know, we look to science and sometimes most of the time science bails us out. So uh, were, you, were you at all worried about catching COVID yourself? I mean, those are early days. I and mean, it was kind of a... Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the most stark moments for me was having, you know, so we graduated and then I spent probably about three or four weeks at home with my parents uh, in lockdown, uh, avoiding everything, you know, all content and so forth as you do, and not having any exposure really to COVID. Um, And then that that was all while waiting for our registration to get on uh, it all sorted and so forth. Then I started and uh, was on a COVID ward and you just kind of like behind these screens Mm -hmm. and you think, I've literally spent four weeks being about as safe as I can be. And now I'm literally staring COVID yeah, in the face. Yeah. And I don't know how I feel about yeah. this. And yeah, it was, it was a surreal time. And, you know, that, yeah, I, there was obviously a lot of sadness and sure, yeah. death and so forth, but it was also, you know, heartwarming to see people rally together. Yeah. And, you know, we, we like that group of, of doctors who I, you know, almost we, we went through that, period together we uh, yeah some strong bonds were formed shall yeah. we say and uh you know it's yeah it's amazing what's what humanity can do when you know for, for good i guess when uh when you've got you know we've got a mind yeah, so no. i'm sure it's scary but also fascinating at the same time you know to be a researcher yeah. So if you would like to learn more about Chris's research, you can find papers that he has written linked to his profile at UCSF. I basically Google Chris Williams UCSF, and you're the one that pops up on those. But there's also the Baker Computational Health Science Institute website. You can find some some interesting papers there. So fascinating stuff. And uh, you have survived our difficult questions, but are you ready for our <laughs> lightning round? Yep, good for okay. it. All right. So who has more foggy days, San Francisco or London? 
San Francisco, but I live in, in the Emission Bay, so uh, <laughs> uh, we don't get that much fog. But then London doesn't get that much fog either. We just get cloud. So okay, it depends. So more sunny, <laughs> more sunny days here, though. For sure, so more sunny days. I said definitely. All right. How about better Asian food, San Francisco or England? It's oh, a good question. I feel like I'll probably say London or the UK, just because it's like the good food isn't as as uh, very very expensive as it currently is here. So. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Yeah, no, that make that makes a big difference is the price. All right, uh, do you have a favorite TV show or movie that has researchers or doctors in it? Uh, so I, in the past, I've tended to avoid uh, <laughs> you know house and medical sure, things sure. because. I've got enough doctor stuff in my <laughs> life, but the the one that I uh, this is going to hurt is a book by uh, Adam Kay, which was made into a BBC uh, like TV show, uh, and it's it's I think it's meant to be a comedy, and it is it has very kind of classic the sort of humour that you would expect to come out of a hospital story, shall we say? And so that that probably be my uh, my pick. Okay, all right. What was it called? It's uh, this is going to hurt. Oh, this is going to hurt. I thought you were just saying this is going <laughs> to. No, no, no. <laughs> Okay. All right. Yeah. No, I think maybe humor is the way to go when you're talking about medicine. <laughs> yeah. All right. So um, if you were a student back at St. Albans, how would you use ChatGPT? Uh, well, I mean, I don't know if this is allowed or whether your students do this, but I'm sure there's a bunch of homework that I could do much right? more quickly. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Now, to be honest, we've gone back a little bit to pencil and paper because you can't trust. Really? Yeah. You can't trust what people send on, online anymore. You don't know who's writing it. So. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it does beg the question. I was having this conversation the other day with somebody who's in education, uh, how the world reacts to new technologies, AI and so forth. And, and yeah, what just, how, yeah, how do you, what do you do? <laughs> there, are, there are people that are actually quite scared that we're not ready. <laughs> you know? Oh, oh I, I, myself included, we're not ready. Okay, okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, we've seen but, the movies. The movies, it doesn't turn out well. <laughs> well, as I know, I think yeah. you know, this is a wider discussion, but the, I'm less concerned about termination type scenario and more concerned about, say, you know, algorithmic bias. Uh, you know, I think there's a lot of here and now that could do a lot of harm hmm. with AI if we're not careful with it. And yeah. Okay. But, All right. Coming from an AI researcher, everybody. <laughs> that's why I do the research. So <laughs> try to prevent that. Oh, man. Okay. So, hey, if you weren't a doctor or a researcher, what would you be doing? Um, Probably... <sighs> And probably something more kind of charity or NGO based. I think um, I remember back in Cambridge, there's this organisation called Charity Entrepreneurship, which is basically like how to set up a charity. Like it, it take like a classic SF entrepreneur guide mm -hmm. and do that for charities. And and I guess that I've always been much more motivated by again, it's the public health yeah, impact type yeah. thing rather than just making lots of money. And and so it probably be that kind of. Uh, social entrepreneurs in my, I guess is a word for it but alright Abbott Wilson will be proud of you <laughs> <laughs> alright and we like to end each show by elevating a member of our community by asking our guests to pick an infatuation an infatuation is anyone in the Asian community that you admire or has inspired you living or deceased so Dr. Chris Williams who is your infatuation uh, it would probably be my good friend and, uh, and colleague, Brenda Mao, who uh, is one of the PhD students in the lab. But you know, she, she's just fantastic in terms of the, her work ethic and what she, like her knowledge and just everything she does. And so, yeah, it's been great to work with her. All right. What's she working on? Uh, kind of more computational, similar stuff to me, but more computational 
side. So she she's much more technical, and I'm very much more in the applied uh, uh, space. And she's currently looking at say simulations uh, for within the healthcare environment and a lot of stuff that I understand. So yeah, <laughs> you and me both. All right, all right. So uh, is Brenda? You said. Yeah. Brenda. All right, Brenda Mao, if you want to come on the show, let me know. <laughs> You're welcome anytime. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, I think that just about does it for episode number 103. Thank you to our guests, Dr. Chris Williams. Best of luck with everything you're doing. You got you got new things in the pike. You got papers coming down the the path. Yeah, yeah, lots of papers. It's been it's been a whale of a time here and uh, you know, just having the yeah, the people around me who can you know, support me to do that has been amazing. So yeah, lots to look forward to. All right. Well, thanks for coming on our show. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, no, lots <laughs> of fun. So you can, uh, as I mentioned, you can uh, find out more about Chris at his profile at UCSF. I'll put the link in the show notes. Uh, as I mentioned, you can always write to us at infatuationpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at, at infatuationpodcast. And always follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Whatever you're listening to us now on, give us a follow, please, and you'll know all of the new episodes. So on behalf of Chris and myself, we hope that you're all happy, healthy, and safe out there. We thank you again for listening. And we'll talk to you soon. Bye, everyone. Cheers. Take care.